together with, with other believers. And I'm thankful that they want to do what your word says and not forsake the gathering together. So, Lord, I'm thankful today. Lord, I pray that as we go throughout this time that you would draw us close. God, I pray that we would know you and that we could just really experience who you are and, and live in light of that. So, Father, I pray that today you would send your spirit. God, send your Holy Spirit to this place that you would come and that you would fill us, Lord. Um, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, prayer requests this morning. I have one that I received just this morning. Um, many of you know Sterling Horst, who has been here with us for a while now. Um, Sterling sent me a message this morning asking us to pray for his seven-month-old niece. Um, uh, over the last, I think it was the last week or so, she started having some seizure-like episodes. Um, and she is currently in the hospital having all kinds of tests being done. So if you would pray for Sterling and his niece, and I didn't write her name down, I believe it was Lucy. Um, if you would pray for her, yes, it was Lucy, seven-month-old niece. Um, so pray for Lucy. Is there anything else that we can pray about together this morning? Yeah, Debbie? Yes, so Linda Fothergill is still in the hospital and will be out at least until tomorrow. Um, but she has had two surgeries in, it's the same spot, isn't it? Okay, so pray for Linda. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, so pray for Shirley Hunzinger. Um, she is, she is still in the hospital, and she just really hasn't been making much progress, it doesn't sound like. Um, but she's, she's hanging in there. She's still moving, still going, but um, just hasn't seen a lot of progress over the last couple weeks. So pray for Shirley. Yeah, Virgil? Sally, Ayler, okay, Sally Ayler, um, Virgil's cousin, uh, okay, yes, okay, so she has bone cancer, sounds like she's doing okay, but it's, uh, it's a very painful process, so pray for Sally. Yes, it is good to see Mitchell. It's always good to see Mitchell. Keep praying for him, though. Yes, um, I can imagine. Just keep praying for Mitchell. <clears throat> okay, well, I know I skipped announcements, but uh, we'll come back to that. I want to pray, so let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father... Um, God, we come to you today, and as I prayed just a few minutes ago, Lord, we are thankful people. God, and if we're not thankful people, it's because we've forgotten what it is that you've done for us. And 
Lord, whenever we start thinking about life in light of in light of your sacrifice on our behalf, I don't know how we could help but be thankful. So, Lord, uh, today we remember the price that you paid. We remember what you've done for us, and we come to you, and we just say thank you, Lord, for being so good and for so for loving us so much that you didn't withhold your own son from us. Instead, you gave him willingly and freely. So, God, we are thankful. <clears throat> Father, I want to I want to ask that you would bring health to many people, God, healing to many people. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, Father. I, I just want to ask that you would that you would come and that you would draw near to these these folks on our list, God. Whether it's um, somebody on one extreme of life or the other, God. As we think about little little Lucy, this seven month old girl who is going through these seizure like episodes, God. I I pray for healing for her. I pray that you would straighten this out, God. And I I know that the parents can can only be feeling confusion and fear and anxiety, God. So I just pray that you would come and that you would bring peace and strength and patience as they walk through this. Um, Father, I I also pray for the other end of the spectrum. I want to pray for Shirley as she's still in the hospital with seemingly no improvement. God, I just pray that you would draw near to her. Let her know that you are there with her, that you love her, that you care for her. Father, and I pray the same thing for, for Patty as she, she stays there and she cares for her mother, um, who I know she loves so much. God, I just uh, I want to ask that you would give her peace and, and rest when she needs it. Um, Lord, so I, I want to I ask for Shirley that you would just draw her near, that she would know your love and your grace, God. And, of course, we ask that you would heal her lungs, that she might be able to breathe a full breath, um, God. And uh, I just pray that you would bring health to her also. Father, there are, there are other folks um, on our list. God, we want to pray for Linda, Father Gill, um, and for healing as she's gone through these surgeries. Um, and God, we pray for Morris too, that you would, that you would give him patience, that, she, he would, that he would have the care that he needs while Linda is down. Um, Father, I just pray that you would bring healing, that you would give her strength, and uh, Lord, that you would give them patience as they walk through this trial. Lord, um, and I also want to pray for for Sally. Um, God, I I can't imagine I can't imagine what it would feel like to get a diagnosis of of cancer, um, especially a cancer that you've watched somebody else go through that is so painful and such a struggle. God, so I pray for Sally that you would give her a peace of mind that she would be able to rest in you, <clears throat> Lord, and that uh, she might really just know your grace in her life. Um, Father, I'm thankful, though. I am thankful that in all of these and many more that may have been mentioned today or um, some that I'm sure haven't been mentioned this morning, God, I'm thankful that, that you love us and that regardless of what happens in this life, that we know that we have life forever with Jesus. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would give us your perspective um, and that we would be able to live in light of that perspective that we might know that eternity is what really matters, that what really matters is knowing Jesus and knowing his sacrifice and knowing his resurrection. So, Father, I pray that you would help us, help us all to live in light of that, um, whether they're on this list or it's those of us who think we're doing well. God, let us see from your perspective. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I know I missed announcements just a minute ago. You know, you go on vacation for a week and you forget what you're supposed to be doing. So 
Um, is there anything that needs to be announced this morning? Okay, well, that makes my job way easier. Um, so, if there's nothing that needs to be announced this morning, let's stand together and let's, let's sing.
fears released. How precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed. My chains are Good morning. The uh, I'm going to have to start finding out what songs are being played before I have communion meditation. 
I can't listen or sing that song without trying and joy. I was sitting back there still trying to figure out exactly where we were going to go this morning on communion meditation. We're here by his great works and to think about and just reflecting back on whether what we've done the last week or reflecting back in our lives or just reflecting back on Adam and Eve they were able to walk here in the garden with God and they still sinned in his presence and tried to hide from him perfect world it started then that's why Jesus had to come because he knew that if they can't do it with me standing here beside them how are they going to do it without me here beside them where they can see them just reflecting back that song those lyrics that come through that wretch is me through and through, looking back at um, it just come to my mind this morning as I was having coffee on the porch thinking, well, looking at what the date was. It's July 10th. It's so... I had a bunch of chains released for me 21 years ago in one week on July 4th was an independence in Christ when I was released from behind the bars. My wife back there spent 22 years, 23 years with this wretch. Praise the Lord. But as I go on through and look at back at my sin then, and I look back at my sin this last week, it's all sin and it's all the same. I thought what I did back then was much worse. It was much worse of hurting other people, but now I'm hurting my family and myself, what am I putting, what, what am I sinning of today? This, it's, you know, it's so much better than what I was. Well, it's still sin. Every time I get in that vehicle to drive, if I leave town, I'm sinning because I'm breaking the speed limit. I have troubles obeying. Every morning I get up and go to work, ideology comes in because now I'm putting my work and everything else that I'm doing before God and my family. It becomes from six, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, I'm sinning because I think that I have this list that all has to be checked off. 
thousand and sixteen hour, fourteen or sixteen hour days, how many hours or minutes am I given to him? I can't even give fourteen to sixteen minutes a day. That's a problem, that's a sin. I'm confessing to you my sins today. And that's just a small start. But that's why we're here today at communion is to reflect back on what we have done and what we have in Christ, where we have hope and salvation to where we don't have to rely on ourselves. We have the wonderful gift of Christ. So we'll go to that with communion. These elements come if you'd hold them, we'll receive them together. take the bread. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we come to you this morning acknowledging our sin before you. Lord, and thanking you for this broken body that this bread represents 
that was broken for us. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you gave it all so that we could have life. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Take and eat. Father, we also, we remember the promise that your word makes. Um, it says that if, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful, God, that you are righteous, that you will forgive our sins. What an awesome promise we have because of the blood of Jesus. Lord, we praise you, praise you that you saved, saved even a wretch like me. Lord, we praise you for it as we receive this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Take and drink. Let's stand and let's sing.
I just muted it. Oh, there we go. Um, Matt, can I throw a wrench in what you're doing real quick? You know, since, since you know, you're not where you usually are, um, can we put those lyrics back up? Just those last two, those last two slides. <clears throat> prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If that doesn't describe us, uh, I, don't, I don't know what does. Um, but then the good news, if you put that last one up. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Did you all, y'all, whenever you sing, do you actually, do, do you think about what we're singing? Like, are you, are you, do you realize how awesome that is? I mean, we sang Amazing Grace, and Corey talked about that, um, that amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Um, but then to think how we're prone to wander. Um, I, I am. I, I am prone to wander. But thank God, thank God that he has my heart. And it's not up to me to maintain anything. He seals it. God seals it. It's his work. It's his forgiveness. It's his mercy, his love, not mine. Thank God for that. Um, can we just, can we pray? Let's pray together. Uh, God, I'm kind of just, uh, I guess, I don't know. I guess I'm just struck by, by your, your mercy this morning. Um, God, I don't know what, what did it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you did it. But Lord, I think we often forget that our sin deserves hell. Um, God, in that I, I was, I was, we were, we were those sinners who were separated from you. And honestly, Lord, if we got what we deserved, we would receive your wrath. Um, we thank you today that that's not the end of the story. That you saw the problem and you did something about it when we couldn't. Um, God, I don't, if that doesn't break our hearts, if that doesn't change us, I don't know what would. Lord, you gave your son, you gave Jesus to be our sacrifice. As we sang just a minute ago, you interposed your precious blood. Um, Lord, so I just come to you today thanking you. Um, Father, I just want to pray those words that we just sang. Here's my heart. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Father, I just, I just surrender it to you now. Um, again. So, Father, I thank you for not turning us away, for, not, for not, not giving us what our sins deserve, but instead you give us grace and you give us mercy and you give us life everlasting. So, Lord, we are thankful people today. Um, Father, make us thankful people today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, not exactly how I planned on starting this this morning, but uh, here we are. Um, uh, on a serious note, though, it is, not that that wasn't serious enough. Um, yeah, 
I'm kind of stumbling over words now. Uh, I don't really know how to go forward whenever God does something in your heart a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, I suppose we kind of got to go on a little bit here. So two weeks ago, we finished up our Rooted series um, where we looked at who we want to be as a church. Um, we looked at our, our roots and what it is that we want to be grounded in and um, I don't want us just to forget about that and move on as if we hadn't talked about how we want to be grounded in ministry of the word and prayer and these other three things that we talked about. Um, I, I want us to remember those. So one of those, of course, being ministry of the word, I want, we're going we're gonna to continue to talk about those as we move forward, but we're going to do it as we look at the book of Titus. Um, and I guess I should tell you all, it's good to be back with you. I, I, I kind of feel a little bit guilty because... Uh, we had some plans fall through with some other folks who were going to fill in last week, and then it just kind of fell to Lane, and I thought Lane did a fantastic job. I got to listen to what he had to say um, online, so again, a plug for our guys in the sound booth. They do a great job, and I was thankful that even though I was 600 miles north out in the middle of nowhere, I could be here with you all that way, so um, yeah, thank you guys for what you do, and I know Lane's not with us this morning. Uh, he's in Colorado Springs, so don't feel too bad for him, um, but I'm thankful for what he did all also, um, so just thank you to everybody who, you know, it's good to know that you're a part of a body that whenever one piece is missing, the other parts come in and they, they continue to keep things moving. So thank you all. But we had a good time. We got to be off. We had a good time of a family vacation. Um, we spent about 10 days up north in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, you go on vacation, and I've told some of you all that you think vacation is supposed to be relaxing. Uh-uh, no. Not even a little. Actually, I spent about the first week trying to get over sore muscles from water sports. Um, it turns out I'm not a young man anymore, so it's harder to recover from those um, water sports. So uh, I had muscles that I forgot I had that were plenty sore for the first week we were there. Um, apparently, that's because I'm losing those muscles. <laughs> Who knew? Um, yeah. So anyway, it was good to be going, but it's, it's awesome to be back with you all, and I'm excited to be in God's Word with you today. Um, so today we're going to be turning our attention towards the book of Titus, and we're going to spend the next several weeks there. And the reason I wanted to go Titus is because I thought it was appropriate for multiple reasons. Some of you are familiar with the letter to Titus. Some of you may be hearing about this letter for the very first time. It's a short book. In my Bible, it takes two pages. Two pages in my Bible, okay? So it's a relatively short book, but I think it teaches us a lot that we need to know. And the reason I wanted to turn here is for a couple of reasons. One, Titus has been labeled a pastoral epistle. Um, so it has a lot to do with what it means to be a pastor, an elder, a deacon, what it means to be uh, a leader in the church. And, it, um, and it's just this letter that Paul is writing to Titus. That's why we have the name Titus telling him uh, all of this about the qualifications for leadership in the church. So that's one thing I want us to look at, especially as we are coming up on our annual congregational meeting. We're about a month away from that, so I thought it would be appropriate to start looking at what does the Bible say about leadership in the church? What does the Bible have to say about elders in the church? What does the Bible have to say about deacons in the church? So I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at this pastoral epistle in light of that. I also thought it would be appropriate because this really does, it applies to everyone. Um, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But um, a after we talked about how we want to be a church that sees people grow into mature followers of Christ, um, I, I thought, well, let's look at a book that deals a lot with being a mature follower of Christ. 
in many ways, the reason anybody would be qualified for the position of elder is because they are mature followers of Christ. So in a lot of ways, this is an oversimplification. Okay, understand that this is an oversimplification. But in many ways, what Paul is doing as he writes to Titus is he's saying, this is what you look for in church leadership because this is what it looks like to be a mature follower of Christ. Okay, so he's teaching what maturity looks like as a follower of Jesus. So hopefully that'll become more and more clear over the next couple weeks. And we'll talk about that more and more as we get further into the book of Titus. But today what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on just the introduction to this letter. Um, the funny thing is a lot of a lot of pastors will skip the introductions um, because they're hard to preach. So stay with me because it is hard to preach, but I think it's important. I think it's important because what this introduction does is it tells us the reason Paul wrote the letter. If you want to know why he's writing, well, look at the introduction he tells you. He says, this is what I'm going to address. Here's why I feel the need to write this letter to this guy named Titus in Crete. This is why we're doing this. So today I want us to look at just this introduction and hopefully we can unpack the reasons Paul is writing this letter. And my hope today is that you can see that Paul's reasons for writing this letter are, in a lot of ways, they overlap with reasons we need to be connected to the local church. Um, of course, you are thinking, of, sure, you're a pastor. Of course you want us to be connected to a local church. Well, that's true, but that's because I care about you. And I think that the local church is incredibly important. So I think as we look at, as we look at these reasons for Paul's writing, I think we can see these are reasons we need to be connected and we need to be involved in a local body. Okay, so that's my goal today. It's to show you those things. Would you all stand with me? Let's read God's word together. Um, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read the first four verses together. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward introduction, right? So, what does this have to do with being connected to the local church? Well, four reasons. First, Paul wrote, the, Paul wrote to Titus here for the faith of the elect. For the faith of the elect. Okay, verse 1. He says, Paul, and a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul begins with a statement regarding his apostolic appointment. And I actually think it's interesting, I think it's worth noting, that this is longer than most of Paul's introductions. In most of his introductions, it's one line, maybe two. You just get this brief little introduction, and then you're into the letter. Okay, but that's not what he does with this one. This one, he gives a slightly longer introduction. We have four verses, and it's still relatively short, but it's longer than most of his introductions. And the first thing he says here is that he is a servant of God, a servant of God, which for most of us may sound pretty basic, right? Paul, a servant of God. Okay, why is that worth noting? Well, it's the only time Paul introduces himself that way. 
This is the only letter that Paul introduces himself as a servant of God. All the others, he may say something along the lines of servant of Christ, but he doesn't say servant of God. So this is a little bit unique. Okay, The first thing that we need to know about that is that the word servant in the Greek literally is, is the word doulos, which, which should be translated, in my opinion, slave. He's saying, I am a slave of God. Now, understand that slavery in this context isn't like we think of slavery in America. It was a slightly different, but the word servant doesn't really do this justice either. We think of a servant who comes in, does their job, they go home, and that's it. There was something bigger to this. It was like a, a bond servant, somebody who they may have had their own rights, but they were they were slaves to this owner, to this person. They owed their lives to them. So he was a slave of God. Okay. So while it's not the same as we think of slavery, it's deeper than just some servant. Second, Paul is usually greeting servant of Christ, not servant of God. And this small distinction is really important. See, what's probably happening here, what Paul is likely doing, is he's thinking about a Jewish audience. And this Jewish audience in Crete likely would hear the term servant of God and think prophets. Because that's how the prophets were identified, as servants of God. See, this is different. This is different from the way he usually introduces himself. And he knows, okay, Paul knows that there are Jewish believers in Crete. If you go back to the first couple chapters of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and all of these Jewish people are gathered together, one of the nations that is specifically identified as being represented in, in Jerusalem at Pentecost is Crete. Crete is mentioned there. So Paul knows that there are Jewish believers living here. So he is grabbing the attention. He is grabbing the attention of this Jewish audience by saying, Paul, in a, a servant of God. A servant of God. He's deliberately placing himself on the same level as the prophets. He's saying, listen up, I have a word from God. So he says, Paul, servant of God. Second, he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I find it interesting that Paul here connects being a servant of God to being one sent out by Jesus. I just find that interesting. That to be under God is to serve Christ. So after he properly identifies himself as servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, we get our first purpose statement in the text. He says he's writing for the faith of God's elect. For the faith of God's elect. And this word faith, y'all are going to be tired of me telling you about this word faith, this word pistis. Um, but this Greek word is incredibly important. I don't think we can oversell the significance of this Greek word pistis, this word faith. This word is incredibly important. In other words, what he's saying whenever he says that he's writing about the faith of God's elect, what he's saying is he's writing to them so that these believers might lean more fully on Jesus. So that they might lean into him more fully. Because that's what faith is. It's the leaning of the entire human personality upon God or the Messiah. And absolute trust and confidence in his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. Now, certainly, the idea of faith like we think about it, intellectual knowledge, of course that's there. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just knowing something. It's actually leaning what you have, trusting in what you know. So what he's saying here is he's writing for the faith of God's Elect. Okay? So get used to hearing that word faith because it's going to come up again and again and it's too important not to talk about. So if you want to know any Greek, know the word pistis. It's 
incredibly important. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to lean everything we have on him. But he doesn't just say it's for faith in general, for growing in faith. He says it's for the faith of God's elect. So what he says, for the faith of God's elect. And this word elect is the Greek word eklekton. Um, it's a fun one to say, eklekton. It means chosen or picked out. That's what this word means that many of our translations have as elect. Um, this word is actually where we get our word eclectic. Anybody, have you guys, are you familiar with the word eclectic? Some of you? Familiar with this word? Um, I want to be careful because I'm going to talk about my high school English teacher a little bit. Um, and some of you know my high school English teacher, so I want to be a little bit careful. Um, but this was one of his favorite words. Um, and I remember the first time I ever heard this word, it was his. He said that he, he, we were talking about music styles. And he said he had an eclectic music style. Um, he liked all of these different kinds of music, which I thought was really funny because if you looked at his playlist, it was all 80s hair bands. Um, so I don't know that it was all that eclectic, but he, he claimed it was. So um, anyway, but I think the reason I tell you that is because I think his intention was to say he liked a broad range of music. And that's what this word eclectone means. It means selected from a wide range. It carries the idea of he, God could have anything he wants, and he selects what he chooses, okay? That's what God is doing here. We see that he is for the faith of God's elect, for his chosen, the ones that were selected from a wide range of options. Now, how all of this election works, that's a whole other story that, honestly, we don't have time to get into. And even if I did, some of you would put me into a theological box that I'm not interested in being plugged into. So, we're going to keep on moving here. But if you want to know more about what I think, talk, about me, talk to me later. But in one way or another, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can't argue that God has chosen. That is incredibly biblical. It's all over the place. In some way, shape, or form, God has chosen. All right? And that's what he says. That's, when God chooses you, he says that means that you are God's elect. So Paul is writing for the faith of God's elect or God's chosen. But Paul states very clearly, very clearly, that he wants God's chosen people to grow in their faith. And that's why he's writing this letter to Titus. These people may have a knowledge of salvation, but he wants them to grow in that faith. He doesn't want it to stay immature. He wants to see them grown up. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what the local church should exist for, right? Right? That's what we spent the last couple months talking about. Like, we want to see people grow into mature followers of Christ. We, while we want to see baby Christians because we want to see people come to know Christ, we want to then see them rooted and grown in that faith. To build your faith, to challenge your faith, to encourage you in the faith, to teach you in the faith. That's why the church exists. So if you're not connected and involved in the church, there's a good chance you're going to remain underdeveloped in your faith. I don't want that for you, and I hope you don't want that for yourself. Many people are like, well, why do I have a weak faith? Well, maybe it's because you're not plugged into the church. That's, God gave the church for that reason, so that you could exercise the faith that you have. And we'll talk about that more here in just a little bit. But one reason we need to be connected to the local church is for the faith of the elect, for, de oh, excuse me, for developing the faith of the elect. Second, Paul wrote to Titus here for the knowledge of truth. 
So he says, for the faith of the elect, for the knowledge of the truth. He says, Paul, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now, this knowledge of the truth is going to be unpacked here in just a few weeks whenever we get to chapter 2. So hopefully we'll see that more here in just a few weeks. But I, I want to try to be relatively brief on this because we are going to come back to it. But I do think we need to at least touch on this knowledge of the truth. What we need to note, what is important here, is that Paul ties the idea of faith and knowledge together. He ties the two of them together here. A person can't believe in something that they don't know anything about, right? You can't believe in something you know absolutely nothing about. So you have to have at least some knowledge. And if a person hasn't heard the good news of Jesus, then they can't trust in the good news of Jesus. So knowledge of the truth is incredibly important, according to Paul. He's writing, saying, this is one of the reasons I'm writing to Titus, is for this knowledge of the truth. But what is truth? What is truth? What is this truth that he's writing about? See, the simplest definition of truth would be something that represents the way things actually are. That's the simplest definition. Like, if I said these chairs, they're blue, like... That's a true statement because that represents the way that the chair actually is. Okay? You all know we're kind of famous for blue chairs. Um, So, these chairs, they are blue. Now, some of you are probably colorblind and you're thinking, how do I know that's true, Jared? Are you lying to me? Well, no, the chairs are blue. All right, just trust me. You can, really. Okay, so... They actually are. So that's the simplest definition of truth. Something that represents the way things actually are. Okay, that's the simplest definition. But there's something bigger to this word truth. There's something bigger that Paul is talking about whenever he says a knowledge of the truth. He's talking about the reality that, that underlies the essence of things. The thing that is behind everything else. In other words, he's saying, he's saying, I want you to have a knowledge of the one thing that undergirds everything in existence. I want you to know that truth. I want you to know it. And of course, we know what is that truth that underlies everything. His name is Jesus. He is the truth that underlies everything. Everything is true. So essentially, Paul's saying, I'm writing to you so that you can know Jesus that you can know more about Jesus, the truth. I want you to know about him more. Because apart from this knowledge, really, apart from a knowledge of Jesus, existence kind of becomes meaningless. I mean, it really does. Now, that sounds kind of morbid, and maybe not morbid, maybe, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Annihilistic? Um, It just, but it really is. Apart from Jesus, existence kind of becomes meaningless. I mean, if we are just a random group of cells that are created from millions and millions of years of random accidents, then what's the point? The funny thing is nobody can seem to give an answer to that question. It's because there isn't a point. It's just an accident. But Paul, he wants Titus and the church here in Crete to know that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, everything he says is true. That no one comes to the Father except through this truth, through Jesus. He wants them to know Jesus. He wants to tell them the truth of Jesus so that they can grow in their faith. And that's what we need to be doing as a church. That's another part of the reason the church exists, right? Ministry of the Word. We believe the Word is truth because the Word comes from the breath of God. So, of course, we want to minister to this Word. I quote Warren Wearsby too much, but I'm going to do it again. He says that local churches ought to be Bible schools where the Word of God is taught systematically and in a practical way. And I completely agree. Churches, the local church, should be 
should be a sort of Bible school where the word of God is taught systematically and practically. That should be our goal. That should be what we want. And that's another reason we need to be connected to the local church. It's so that we can grow in our knowledge of the truth. In our knowledge of the truth. But see, there's another step to that, right? Um, He doesn't just stop and say, well, I'm writing to you so that you can know more truth. Uh, No, he goes another step, which is our third part. Paul wrote to Titus for personal obedience. Because he says he's writing for their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Okay, Um, I'm going to ask you to do something for me for just a minute. I want you all to hold on really tight because I'm going to say something crazy. Um, And at the end of this, your mind's going to be so blown that your hair might be just like blown to the back of the room or something. So just hold on for a minute because this is going to get wild. All right. Did you guys know that knowing Jesus can and must change the way you live? Yeah, that's a mind-blowing revelation. Knowing Jesus will change the way you live. Now, some of you are thinking, why is that so mind-blowing? Which means that your minds aren't blown, and I let you down a little bit. Um, But I'll explain why that's so mind-blowing, especially in the culture in which we live here in just a moment. But Paul here says that knowing the truth, knowing Jesus, leads to godliness. And what he's doing is he's placing an emphasis on the action, on the action that follows the knowledge. He's saying this knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. It leads to action. Okay, uh, Stephen Smith, I love quoting Stephen Smith because Steve's here. Um, Different Stephen Smith, this is a professor at Southwestern Seminary. Um, He believes that faith and godliness are, are the two main reasons that Paul writes this letter. But he says, the idea is that godliness actually affects something. It changes behavior. It changes your behavior. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that there are people in Crete, as there are today, who profess Jesus, but they don't live accordingly. Instead, he says, I want you to know the truth that changes the way you live. Knowing Jesus isn't just something that's going to let you go on about the way, about things the way you were before. Instead, it's actually going to change the way you live. And the reason this is so mind-blowing is because there are actually churches, there are really churches today, that are saying, okay, we want to make sure that... They have good intentions. Let me say it that way, because I want to be charitable. They have good intentions. They want to say, okay, look, there is no work that you can do that's going to, that's going to save you. And that's true. That's, that's biblical. There is no work. There is nothing you can do, absolutely nothing you on your own can do that's going to make you more palatable to God. There's nothing that's going to make you more acceptable, more pleasing to God. There is no work that you can do. There's no work that you can do to earn your salvation. There's no work you can do to maintain your salvation. Nothing like that. Absolutely nothing. Which is good. That's true. That's biblical. The only thing that can save you is God's grace through faith in Jesus. That's it. God's grace is all that can save you. Not your actions, not your works, nothing like that. Okay, so that's their intention. However, what has happened then is since we have, we have said, well, no works can save you, then we're all of a sudden, we, we almost make it as if, if you're saying that there should be works that follow your salvation, you're saying that there's maintenance that you need to do for your salvation, so we're going to reject works altogether, and we're going to say that it's just, we're just going to all focus all the time on, on grace and grace and grace and charity, which, okay, yeah, that's good. But what Paul here is saying, why this is so mind-blowing, is he says that, that faith leads to works. Have you all ever heard of the book of James in the Bible? You all ever read the book of James? That's the whole point. 
That's like the whole book. He says, you have faith? Good. Show it. Huh. It's a crazy concept. I'm just going to give you an example of this that is incredibly relevant right now. Um, some of you may be familiar with, with this. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about. Hopefully, uh, at the end of this, you're not frustrated like I was whenever I found out what was going on. Um, but I just want to use this as an example to show you that this is a real thing. That people are saying like, okay, no, there don't have to be works that follow salvation. Instead, you can just keep on living, forgive the expression, but you can keep on living like hell um, if you want. And it's really okay because God saved you anyway. No, the Bible says that there is knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Okay, so here's an example. Okay, There's a song that came out just not all that long ago um, by a guy named Matthew West. Um, have any of you guys heard of this song called Modest is Hottest? Anybody heard of this song? It, show of hands. Have you ever heard of this? Y'all heard of this song? Did anybody else think it was hilarious? I thought it was awesome. As a father of a young child, I thought it was great. Um, so anyway, for, since most of you haven't heard of this song, have you guys at least heard of Matthew West? He's a Christian recording artist, um, and anyway, so he wrote this song called Modest is Hottest, which was clearly intended to be satire, like it was clearly intended to be funny, all right? If you watch the video, which had like 500,000, I don't know, 600,000 views on YouTube or whatever, and I don't even know where it was actually posted first, it may have been, I don't know what TikTok is, so call me old if you want, but I think it might have gone there first, I have no idea. Anyway, it had all of these views, and... It was clearly intended to be funny. In this video, he's got his young daughters where he's telling them, well, you guys need to cover up more because the boys think you're beautiful and like, I want to protect my daughters. And he's going through all this stuff. So I just want to read a couple of these lines, just the chorus to you. He, he says, modest is hottest. It's the latest fashion trend. A little more Amish, a little less Kardashian. What the boys really like is a turtleneck and a sensible pair of slacks. Honey, modest is hottest. Sincerely, your dad. Okay, now, that's a funny song, cute song. Okay, it actually got removed. It got taken down because there was a tremendous amount of backlash as a result of this song. So if you want to go watch it right now, I'm sorry, you can't because it's been removed. Um, because there was a tremendous amount of backlash over this song. Yeah, some of you are thinking, why in the world was there backlash over that? Like, everybody agrees. Everybody agrees on that. Like, I want my daughter to dress modestly. Like, I want her to be sensible. Okay, what's the problem here? Okay, well, either you think it's funny or you're thinking, well, I completely agree with what he said. Well, it was met with a bunch of backlash. Um, there was actually one pastor in Oklahoma who I read quotes from. He did a parody video, and then he did an interview after this video talking about how he saw all these problems with this song. Um, and he essentially said in his interview that women should wear what they want. Do what you want is basically what he was saying. Now, I understand the issues. And I'm not trying to defend the song. That's not my point. I'm just trying to use this as an example. Um, because, first of all, the Bible has a lot to say about modesty. It has a lot to say about modesty. So I don't get what the problem with telling people to be modest is. Um, second is that the sentiment of just do what you want that's being express, expressed is exceptionally counter-biblical. The Bible teaches you, in fact, that as a follower of Jesus, you can't just do what you want. You are not to just do what you want. Um, and if, by the way, if you want those modesty passages, I've got them written down. We can talk about it later. But um, the idea that just do what you want is, is counter-biblical because... 
the Bible actually teaches that, that faith in Jesus, that a knowledge of the truth must result in a change in your life. That's why I told you to go read the book of James or consider both the Old Testament and the New Testament, what they say about, you know, be holy as I am holy. God's word doesn't just call us to say, forget your actions completely and just come to Jesus. Now, yeah, come to Jesus. Absolutely. Come to Jesus in faith, knowing that his grace is the only thing that's going to save you. However, that will necessarily result in a changed life. Your actions will follow your heart. And if your heart is with Jesus, your actions will follow Jesus too. Okay? Now, that's biblical. That's all over the place. Be holy as I am holy. And Paul here is connecting, Paul here is connecting a knowledge of the truth with action. A knowledge of the truth will lead to godliness, a changed life. So part of the reason Paul is writing to Titus is for personal obedience. And he goes further because he says in verse 3, he says, In his own time he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm being personally obedient even in giving you these commands. Personal obedience is a tremendous part of this letter. That's the purpose of this letter. But it's my opinion that it is often a connection to the local church that calls us to this kind of personal obedience. I know that that's been my experience. I don't know that that has been your experience, but I do believe that that's a biblical idea. We haven't been called to live the Christian life in isolation. And that's really part of our task as the church is to call people to personal obedience. So by saying just do whatever you want, we are not being obedient to the call we have as a, as a church. We're supposed to do this. That's what Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, that's what it says. It says, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. We should be provoking love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. This is one of our roots, this love for one another. And if we're going to love one another, we will provoke good works. We will urge one another as we grow in a knowledge of the truth to live lives of godliness. Now, we need to make sure we're doing this in a way that is loving, but this is part of what we exist for. Interestingly enough, um, that's part of the reason that the church in Acts grew like wildfire It was because they were so radically committed to gathering together and serving one another and urging one another, encouraging one another. And if we want to see the church thrive today, I think we need to understand this truth that we need to be connected to the local church so that we can be personally obedient to what God has called us to. We need the church. Okay, so we need to be connected to the local church for the faith of the elect, knowledge of the truth, and to be personally obedient. Fourth, Final reason that Paul wrote this letter that we get here in this introduction is that Paul wrote to Titus for the sake of encouragement. He wrote to encourage others. Specifically, he wrote to encourage Titus, which is what we're going to see. Verse 4, he says, To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Okay, now we don't know how Titus was one to the faith, but many scholars believe that it was a result of Paul's preaching. It was a result of Paul's teaching. That's why Paul here calls Titus his son in their common faith. Okay, this wasn't strange. Now, it would be strange if I called you my son in the faith or my daughter in the faith. That would be uncomfortable for me, so I'm probably not going to do that. I would prefer to call you brothers and sisters in the faith. Um, so let's just go with that. Um, so that's what, we, that's what I'm going to go with. But Paul here, he says that he's his son. 
What we do know about Titus is that he was, of Jew, he was not of Jewish descent, that he was a Greek, which would have automatically made him an outsider to some of these Cretan Jews who became believers in Jesus. So Paul says, he's my son in the faith. And in 2 Corinthians, we find that he is, Titus has worked alongside Paul. So there was a tremendous need for, Paul, or for Titus to be encouraged by Paul. A tremendous need for this. Because Titus here was working with a group of new believers on this island of Crete. Working with them, new believers, immature believers. He's trying to help them grow in their faith. He's working with them. So he needs all the encouragement he can get. And essentially what Paul is doing is he writes this to his true son in the faith. Essentially what he's doing is saying, you know what, I've got your back. I've got you. Like, trust me. And if you actually go back to the very, very first part of this introduction, we would learn that this letter likely wasn't only intended to be read by Titus. Instead, it was to be read openly amongst the church. It was, read, it was intended to be read openly amongst the church. And that's shown in his introduction. You want to know how? I'll talk to you later. Um, but it was to be read openly. And now what he's doing by saying to Titus, my true son in our common faith, he's saying, listen, listen, church, I, I not only have this apostolic, Paul is saying, I not only have this apostolic calling from God, I am not only speaking as a prophet of God. What you need to understand is that I have Titus's back. You have a problem with Titus, you've got a problem with me. I wouldn't want to mess with Paul. Uh, I don't know if y'all would, but I sure wouldn't want to mess with Paul. So he's writing to encourage Titus. The servant of God says that he is backing the teaching and the authority of this man named Titus. See, the thing is, I think too many times, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, too many times we go about our day-to-day life thinking that we can't live the Christian life like we've been called to because it's too hard. Just think we can't do it. Even if we don't admit it, many of us, I think, have often felt that. Um, And here's what I mean. I think that oftentimes there is a temptation that we struggle to overcome, that we just don't think we can overcome at all, or a person that we don't have the guts to tell, to share the gospel with, or a challenge that we don't know how to meet, whether that be a health concern or something else. And we just think, you know what? This Christian life is too hard. I don't know that I can do it. And on one hand, well, you're right. It is too hard because on our own, like I told you a little bit ago, we're kind of hopeless. But the good news is you aren't supposed to do it alone. You don't have to. Just like Titus didn't have to go down here to Crete and raise up this church, raise up leaders in this church all on his own, you don't have to live the Christian life on your own either. Not only has God given you the, the helper, the advocate, he's given you the Holy Spirit that now lives and dwells inside you if you're a follower of Jesus. Not only has he done that, but beyond that, he's given you a church that should be able to come alongside you, link arms with you, and walk through the struggle together with. <laughs> Crazy concept. It's, it's amazing how God gives you other people, some of which have gone through very similar circumstances to what you're going through now. It's amazing how God weaves the church together, brings the church together, so that you don't have to do it alone. As we work together in what Paul calls this common faith. This common faith. This word is actually, the word common here is is the word koine, which is where we get our, our word koinonia, which is translated oftentimes as the church or the gathering. 
It's our commonality, the thing that we come together, that we revolve around as a church, which, of course, we know is faith in Jesus. He says we come together for this common faith, for this similar faith. And we should strive as we come together around this common faith to work together, to defend one another, to encourage one another. See, the problem is we struggle with this. We struggle with encouraging one another. I know I certainly struggle with this because I have my opinions and I tend to think I'm right. Huh, am I alone in that? No, laughter says it all. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real struggle. See, oftentimes we have a hard time encouraging one another because we can't get past ourselves. But see, Paul writes specifically to say, look, I'm going to back Titus. He's not alone. I'm with him. And we, likewise, need to be connected to the local church, not only so that we can be encouraged by our brothers and sisters, but so that we can encourage our brothers and sisters, so that we can be there alongside them. So, Paul Paul saw a need to write to Titus to encourage him in the same way we need the church to encourage us and to encourage others. So that's why Paul wrote this letter, for the faith of the elect, for the knowledge of the truth, for personal obedience, and to encourage others. So what? Well, first question I want to ask you is, how is your faith being developed? How is your faith being developed? If Paul here wrote for the faith of the elect so that they would grow in their faith, how are you being developed? How is your faith growing? I told you I love sports. Um, Maybe it's because I like a challenge. I don't know what it is, but I've always loved sports. I love playing sports. I love watching sports. But one of the things I've learned, especially as I've gotten a little bit older, is that sports get harder. (laughs) Um, so I like to play basketball, and what I learned just a couple years ago is, is that it's better for me to keep on playing than play a couple games, sit a game, and then try to get back up and play again. Because, many of you can relate to this, you probably get stiff. That's what happens. That's what happens. If you stop the exercise, it gets more difficult. And it's actually painful then whenever you get up and you try to go again. My knees start popping and it's not fun until you get loosened up again. And I think in the same way, in the same way, our faith needs to be exercised. And whenever we stop exercising that faith, whenever we stop putting that faith into action, it becomes increasingly difficult to get it going again. And it hurts. And sometimes it's painful. That doesn't mean you don't do it. It just means that it's harder if you do stop exercising that faith. And that's what the church is here for. It's an outlet in which you can exercise your faith. So I want to urge you again, find a way to exercise that faith. Mature in that faith. The funny thing is, I I always thought that service was a, a, a benefit to those being served. That's the way I always viewed service. It was a benefit to those who were being served. And it, and it is. It is. That's not wrong. Service is a benefit to those who are being served. But what I learned whenever I actually started getting involved in serving the church is that the benefit was more for the server than for those being served. It was a crazy revelation for me whenever I started teaching actually a, a, a small group. I started leading a small group. I thought, well, this is going to be a benefit for these people. And what I found is it was a benefit for this person. I don't know if anybody else gathered anything from this, from this small group. But what I learned was that I gained a ton from leading a small group. Service in the local church actually does a lot for the server, not just those being served. 
So how are you exercising that faith? How are you developing that faith? Okay, I want to urge you, find a way, get involved, serve in the local church. So how is your faith being developed? Second, how are you growing in a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness? How are you growing in that truth? Hopefully today, we haven't just confused you, hopefully today you have grown a little bit in the knowledge of that truth, but hopefully you are doing that on your own also. So I want to ask, are you reading your Bible? Are you gathering together? Are you meeting with other believers outside of Sunday morning? Or is this the only time you're taking in any Bible and the only time you're getting together with other believers? Are you filling your heart and your mind with God's Word? Are you teaching your kids God's Word? And then are you trying to take that Word and apply it to your life? Because this is a knowledge of the truth that should lead to godliness. In other words, you need to apply the truth that you learn. How are you doing that? Are you willing to do that? I'm just going to be honest with you all. It's hard work. It's not always easy. I know. I struggle with this. Honestly, reading has never been enjoyable for me. This is something I have always struggled with. I have always seen a benefit to reading the Bible. Huh. That's a crazy thing for a pastor to say, isn't it? Reading the Bible should be, it will be beneficial to you. Uh, Of course it will. But if I'm being honest, I have never enjoyed reading. So reading the Bible was work. Is work. Sometimes I get up and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go read. But I know the benefit to it. I know the benefit to it. So at times, this is going to be, it's going to be, here's a fun word, laborious. It's going to be labor. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be difficult. But I promise, I promise you, if you are a follower of Jesus, then studying God's word, knowing the truth that leads to godliness, will be worth your time. It will be worth your time. So, How are you growing in a knowledge of the truth? And finally, I want to urge you. I just want to urge you. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Because I need encouragement. Y'all need encouragement if we're going to do this. And here's the truth. Is that it's going to become increasingly difficult to be a follower of Jesus. Like a real follower of Jesus. It's going to become increasingly difficult. And we will need one another. Like I just said... I need you, and the truth is, y'all are going to need your brothers and sisters to come alongside you and say, you know what, I've got your back. Around this common faith, I want to encourage you, I want to build you up, I want to work with you. So, encourage one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today again, and we say thank you for this word. I thank you for this letter that was written to Titus. And the way that we can take it and we can study it and we can apply it to our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to grow, to grow in our faith, that we would lean into Jesus more and more, more and more as we walk this life together. Father, I want to ask that you would help us to grow in a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Father, I pray that you wouldn't let us be content. I pray that you would actually make us as uncomfortable as possible as long as we're not growing in a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. God, I pray that we wouldn't be content with living an immature Christian life, but instead we would want to grow in maturity, that we would want to grow closer to you. Father, help us. Give us that desire. Give us a longing to be more like Jesus. Father, and lastly, I pray that you would help us to be encouragers. Um, Lord, I know that that's not always my strength. So, Father, I pray that you would help me. Lord, give me the words of encouragement to speak, to speak to my brothers and sisters, these people here who are gathered together, the people who aren't here but are a part of our body. God, I pray that you would give us the words to say, the actions that need to be displayed so that we can encourage one another. 
And all the more as we see the day coming when you return. Father, help us. Um, Lord, I, I guess lastly, I just want to pray the very thing that, uh, that I've been praying for weeks now. And that's that you would come um, both in your second coming and through the power of your spirit. God, I pray that you would come. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. We ask you to come. Lord, change us, change our lives, God. Let us be the church that you want us to be. Let us be the people that you want us to be. And Lord, just help us and guide us, direct us, teach us, mold us into the people you want us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing. If you'd like to respond, I would invite you to do so. Would you all stand with me as we sing Rejoice in the Lord Always?